Greetings, I'm John Haspel. Matt Branham and I founded Cross River Meditation Center in 2012. The following is a Dhamma class recording from our center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. Please support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. So this is the uh, third class of our, now it's going to be a 12-class review of right view uh, and understanding five clinging aggregates or the ongoing personal experience of dukkha. Um, and this is the second class of three on uh, the theme of emptiness as the Buddha teaches emptiness, which is uh, in uh, contrast to almost everything I've, well, everything that I've come across in modern Buddhism. And uh, again, it was an important theme during the Buddha's time because uh, the um, conflicting teachings that other people might want to cling to um, are just as prevalent today as they were during the Buddha's time. It, it's interesting that three defilements um, have maintained their presence throughout human history. Uh, this is the Maha Sunata or Shunyata uh, Sutta. It just means emptiness. Um, again, the Buddha didn't teach emptiness as some kind of amorphous and vague plane of existence to aspire to or to somehow attain in a non-physical way. Excuse me. <coughs> meaning the many fabricated realms that are bandied about, again, during the Buddhist time and our time. Um, the Buddha taught emptiness for one reason, to empty ourselves of ignorance of four noble, four noble truths so as to stop the five clinging aggregates from clinging to each other. The Mahashinyata <coughs> Sutta, <coughs> please, hope I can get through it, the Greater Discourse on Emptiness. The Buddha was at Kapalavatu at the Banyan Park. Returning from his alms round, he noticed the many resting places pe prepared at Kalakamaka. The, the, the Sakins were just the Buddha's clan, meaning anybody that had any blood relation was considered a Sakin. <coughs> at Kalakamaka, the Sakins dwelling and wondered if there were many monks living there. Ananda and many other monks were at the dwelling of Gata making robes. That evening, the Buddha went to Gata's dwelling. He asked Ananda about the many resting places at Kalakamaka's dwelling and if there were many monks living there. Ananda replied, yes, teacher, many monks are in attendance and we are making robes for them. The Buddha was concerned with the social aspects of living as a close community. Um, so this sutta requires um, a, a pretty good understanding of the background of the Dhamma and how everything that the Buddha taught was taught in the context of dependent origination and Four Noble Truths. And you'll see that represented later on in the sutta. Um, what we're talking about in community is to, is to be clinging to a certain 
uh, specific community ideology that we uh, self-referentially attach ourselves to. Um, and once we do that, we'll often, and again, depending on how strongly we're, we're clinging to an ideology that is um, contradicted by the Eightfold Path, because we have associated ourselves with that particular ideology or a group ideology, it makes it very difficult because when we look around, everybody that we consider part of our community is doing something different. So what we're, again, we're not talking about um, uh, it, just, for example, being a part of the Young Democrats Club is not necessarily being distracted by a community unless you create an identity over it. So anytime we create an identity over anything external, we're going to be in trouble. And that's what the Buddha is talking about. The Buddha remarked to Ananda, a Dhamma practitioner does not flourish if they delight in company and is committed to delighting in company. So again, any, any um, community that we are a part of and that distracts us away from the Dhamma, away from the Eightfold Path as the Buddha teaches it and as we teach it, is going to result in you not flourishing in the Dhamma. So, the, and again, the reason why I keep emphasizing that is I learned from my teacher, the Buddha, that this is very important. In fact, it's singularly important to those that will develop the Dhamma to its completion. A Dhamma practitioner does not flourish if they delight in being part of a group and rejoices in being part of a group. It is indeed impossible when a Dhamma practitioner delights in company, is committed to company, and who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in a group, that they will achieve the pure pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, of unbinding and release, and of self-awakening. Self-awakening, right? The Buddha always referred to them to himself and others that awaken during his time as becoming rightly self-awakened. We do it ourselves, but we do it within this very limiting uh, practice of incorporating the Eightfold Path. Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone or has established seclusion on their cushion and off their cushion. It doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't uh, live with a spouse or a, a whatever a partner might be, and be committed to that relationship. But we should also be careful about taking identity over those types of things. That can also damage the relationship, but I'm not going to get into that now. Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, withdrawn from company and withdrawn from groups, can achieve the pure pleasure of renunciation, of seclusion, of unbinding and release, and of self-awakening. So the Buddha is talking about rather than de be delighting in our external entanglements to delight in a pure pleasure of renouncing ignorant views. To take delight, not in something external, but delight in, in establishing seclusion on our cushion and off our cushion. And be delighted with unbinding and release from views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. And to be delighted by the prospect and the, and the process 
of becoming rightly self-awakened. Another way of saying all of that is to is it's important to prioritize your Dhamma practice. Yes, Zach. John, can I interrupt and ask a question? Sure. Well, you called on me, so I'm assuming yes. Um, I'm reading between the lines and maybe making a poor assumption here, but it sounds to me as if <clears throat> the sutta is saying that communities are inherently ignorant of Four Noble Truths. No. Is that a fair conclusion? No. Clinging to communities, this community is not ignorant of Four Noble Truths, but clinging to communities that are not, and the creating an identity over that is going to prove to be difficult in your Dharma practice. So again, the Buddha is not, the Buddha and I don't care what groups you're a part of, but what I care about as a Dharma teacher is that you don't create identities over them and get distracted or even enraged by the rhetoric of that particular ideology. And again, it's a, it's a matter of really, and it says it here too, of establishing seclusion in all the things that we do. And again, it doesn't mean that we're isolated. It means that we're, in fact, I think those of you that are developing the Dhamma have found that you're much more meaningfully engaged with others. The relationship or the, the, uh, uh, the incidental um, participation in groups, even if it's a group of two or three or, or hundreds, is one that doesn't lead to eye-making. If the, if the group itself does encourage and really only allows for continued eye-making by clinging to an ideology, that's something as a Dharma practitioner that you would hopefully recognize and simply abandon it, like any other aspect of creating person, uh, a, a clinging view in relation to that. Does that answer your question? I think so. I mean, so the just the if the ideology is ignorant of four noble truths, then there will be suffering. That's there will be dukkha. Right. However, that manifests. Right. It, it could Regardless be. Regardless if it's in the community or within yourself, though, right? Well, it's all this. It, yeah, but that's really the same thing. Sure. If it's if you're clinging to a communal view that is contrary to your own well-being, even though you're clinging to it that's still internally. It's not the cause of the group. A group is a group just because it's a group. But what, how do we see ourselves in relation to the group? Just as the awakening and understanding anatta is understanding the relationship to me and everything that's occurring out in the world. So this is getting a little bit more finite because again, the Buddha noticed it during his time. I notice it here, you know, almost every class, something like that comes up. It doesn't mean you're rejecting. I'm not going and saying I can no longer be part of that group because because unless you're in the process and within teachings of the Dhamma, of course everything outside of that is in wrong view. It just by definition. But it does mean that when you go in any group, go in that group with the guidance of the four noble truths. Yes, thank you for saying that. And really what's most important is to is to see the what hopefully is the most important aspect of your dharma practice as the buddha teaches the sangha is what you should be most um circumspect about is your sangha a place that likely 
or the group, another word for sangha, is that group, is that sangha beneficial to your dharma practice? Is it well framed by an eightfold path or is it something that contradicts it? And again, as dharma practitioners, using the eightfold path as intended as a limiting path, not, not a, a, a springboard to more confusion and distraction, to use it in the way it's intended to achieve that same result. Thanks, Zach. I think I read that before. I lost my place for a moment. All right. Ananda, it is impossible for a Dharma practitioner who delights in company and is committed to delighting in company, who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in being part of a group, is able to enter and remain the release from self-referential views. And it, it's obvious here, right, that if you're if you've already created an identity about anything, and this is related to a group and a group other than a well well formed, well informed and well focused saga like we have here, it's simply going to be a distraction. Okay. So we're not it, we're not me and, and the Buddha is not teaching something that should be in, seen in any way as controversial or even antisocial. In fact, it really is just the opposite. It's anti-controversial and very social because it allows us to limit, to abandon all those things that actually block me from having a realistic relationship with another human being or even another group. Ram, and quickly, I don't want to get too, there's a long sutta, so I don't want to get Yeah. Uh, so you could even wrongly identify with um, a well-focused sangha. Yeah, we're, and one of the reasons why we present the Dhamma in this way, you know, we don't go running around Frenchtown with signs about Cross River Meditation Center, repent now or you're all going to die. You know, we do our practice and we go along. I mean, unless, unless it comes up for a reason, nobody knows me as and would even identify me as a Buddhist. And I don't, you know, I practice the Eightfold Path. I'm a Dhamma practitioner, but that's, to me, that's nothing special. That's the most ordinary thing in the world to practice something that is, that works and that is so beneficial to my well-being. But I'm doing it because it works, because it, it makes my life the most fulfilling and meaningful that it possibly can be. So thanks. Again, I want to get through the suit today. Do, do you have another comment, though, Ron? I don't no, want to... no, that, that was kind of what you said. Whether, yeah. You know, you could take this too far in the sense that you can get really identified with the fact that you are now a Dharma practitioner and that you are now part of the sun. Yeah, but the, the again, the, the the fine line maybe is, but also understand the importance of being committed to that sangha and right. and yeah. as dhamma as sangha members i think every one of us knows how significantly important it is to want to take care of our sangha but again we that's why we have guidelines and we do certain things as, as our practice and we suggest certain things it's best to sit twice a day etc cetera, etc cetera, because that's what works right I know from personal experience that bowing a hundred times a day 
is not going to do anything for my Dhamma practice. It's just a waste of time. But because a community that I belong to says that you have to bow a hundred times a day to practice their Dhamma. And so I got to get in those hundred bows, but now I don't have any time for meditation or go to class. Right. There's the distraction. It does. It's not part of the Dhamma. It's not helpful. Ananda, it is impossible for a Dhamma practitioner who delights in company and is committed to delighting in company, who delights in being part of a group and rejoices in being part of a group, is able to enter and remain in the release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable or in the more refined release from self-referential views that is not temporary and is beyond fabrication. Ananda, it is indeed possible for one who lives alone, well secluded, withdrawn from company and withdrawn from groups to enter and remain in the release from self-referential views that is temporary and pleasurable. Temporary just means that we're all experiencing the impermanence of human life every moment of our day. The Dhamma, practicing the Dhamma doesn't fix ourselves at a point in time. It's only being clinging to an ideology that fixes ourselves to a, to a, a point in time. Practicing the Dhamma as intended means that we really are in a thing that so many people are enamored with today, in the flow of life. We're able to be present for each and every moment because we don't discriminate between moments or groups or even our Sangha. We just want to be and participate in a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. From self-referential views, it is temporary and pleasurable or the more refined release from self-referential views that is not temporary and is beyond fabrication. Then the Buddha says, I do not see even a single being who would not experience confusion, delusion, and suffering from being passionate and taking delight or identifying in company and groups. Ananda, there is a pleasant abiding discovered by the Tathagata, discovered by him. The guy figured this out and experienced it himself. Not attending to any self-referential views, who enters and remains in an internal quality that is empty of any self-referential views. Again, he refers to this as an internal emptiness. Not clinging to it or craving for anything in the world. While abiding in this pleasant abiding, he is visited by others. His mind, while established in seclusion and having abandoned the fermentations that develop from clinging to company and groups, this is important. This is part of right speech that we're talking here. Converses with others only when necessary and skillful, and then they take their leave. What is that last line? It means that we converse with others that are skillful, but we don't wait around for applause. Right? We had our say, we address what was in front of us, and then we walk away. So Ananda, practice to enter and remain an internal self-referential emptiness, or all of us. We practice to enter, remain in an internal self-referential emptiness. Free of clinging, one can now develop concentration. Free of clinging, one can now develop concentration. When withdrawn from the results of ignorant views, well concentrated, one enters and remains in the first jhana. As concentration deepens, one enters the second jhana and the third jhana. Finally, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a quality of mind that is pure and calm, 
with no discrimination between pleasure or pain. We're not grasping after or trying to avoid or have any aversion to anything. This is how one becomes unified within and well concentrated. This Dharma practitioner is settled in internal self-referential emptiness. Their mind does not crave internal self-referential emptiness. We're not trying to fix something anymore. We're not trying to resolve a problem. We're not trying to gain a little bit more um, knowledge that is not applicable or not framed by the Eightfold Path. Peace and calm is understood as being empty of clinging views and unconditioned mindfulness. The Buddha continues, having emptied themselves of self-referential views, they remain mindful of internal and external emptiness. So that it touches on what you said before too, Zach, isn't it? Internal and external emptiness is, is one thing, right? It's just emptiness, being empty of clinging. But again, the, the Buddha addresses this internality and externality in, in many suttas. When our focus is out there, it's external. But internal, it can be just as damaging and probably more damaging and, and uh, distracting. And in that abiding, I'm not clinging to any acquisition. And I'm not clinging for what's external to approve of me or or my abiding. Yeah, thank you. We're not trying to prove ourselves to ourselves anymore. Right. We practice gently and within the framework and as taught. That's all. Well, I should say that. That's all, but the Buddha continues, their mind is beyond disturbance. Isn't that wonderful? And it and it's great if we can achieve that in its permanent state, but recognize it when it occurs, because that's why we practice. Our minds become beyond disturbance. So then we can be with any company or any small group, and nothing will disturb us anymore, because we aren't creating or, or, or gaining an identity by our associations, or even our associations to an ideology that is in con contradiction to the Dharma. Their mind is beyond disturbance, free from external or internal disturbance. They are brilliant and alert and at peace. So that's another um, benchmark for you. Do you feel brilliant and alert and at peace? And if you don't, what's the answer? Gently return to Dharma practice or gently continue to practice the Dharma. Because we know, and all of you I have been practicing the Dhamma long enough that you've experienced all of this. You've had moments, maybe even half a day or days or weeks, where you feel like this, brilliant, alert, and at peace. Those take pleasure in the emptiness of self-referential views. We take pleasure in it. We know how wonderful it is to abandon these all of these limiting fabrications, they have developed skillful concentration. This is why we practice jhana, the meditation method that the Buddha taught as included in the first 
portion of, this, of the four foundations of mindfulness as we practice here, as is on the guidance from the meditation, uh, guided meditations on the website. Then the Buddha says, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, this Dhamma practitioner knows that no craving or regret or any unskillful qualities will arise. That's power, my friends. When you know that, when you know you're good to go and nothing is going to affect your calm and well and peaceful mind in any way, you've arrived. But you've all experienced that. Even if it's just for a few minutes, you know what we're talking about. Their speech is not base or vulgar or common or ignoble or harmful or unnecessary or does not lead to discontent or to dispassion or to cessation or to calm or to direct knowledge or to unbinding or self-awakening. I'm going to read it again in this context because if you really want to know the quality of your mind and the quality of your Dhamma practice, watch what's coming out of your mouth, especially in stressful situations and especially when you're talking about the Dhamma and most importantly, the internal dialogue. Always measured against what we know of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Their speech, our speech, is not base or vulgar or common or ignoble or harmful or unnecessary. That's a big one, is what I'm saying, necessary. Or does not lead to enchantment that doesn't help people in that way. Or to dispassion or to cessation or to calm or to direct knowledge, or to unbinding, or self-awakening. So, of course, now we're talking about the community of the Sangha as well. The Buddha always taught, and we practice it well here, that when gathered as a Sangha, we speak only of the Dhamma. And that's why the Sangha works so well, and we're able to develop the Dhamma as we are. They are unconcerned with kings, or robbers, or food, or armies, or gossip, or talk of existence or non-existence, right? That becomes foolish, a waste of, just a waste of time. And we don't waste time as Dharma practitioners. Creating fabrications over what is existence or what is non-existence. What's the no-form state, right? All of that is just a distraction and a waste of time. How do I know about existence? What existence is, is to be present for it. But that's the only way. Not describing it or creating an ideology or a philosophy about what it means to exist. We know what it means to exist, to be a human being in this moment. That's existence. There's no other existence beyond that for human beings except being a human being. This Dharma practitioner develops the right intention to engage in right speech that is free of cling, craving and clinging and is scrupulous, supportive of the Dharma, and does lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to direct knowledge, to unbinding, and to self-awakening. Right? That's what we're trying to do here. That's what we are doing. Their mind is alert and well-concentrated. This Dharma practitioner develops the right intention to think skillful thoughts. Right. That's part of our intention to be mindful of our thoughts. That's why we develop concentration and to be mindful of skillful and unskillful thoughts. Free of group influence. 
that leads to renunciation, to harmlessness, to the cessation of confusion, delusion, and stress. Their mind is alert and well-concentrated. While dwelling in seclusion, their mind, well-concentrated, mindfulness of right intention, provides the framework to recognize and abandon thoughts that are base, vulgar, common, ignoble, hurtful, that do not develop disenchantment, dispassion, release, calm, direct knowledge into self-awakening. Um, this is such a, an important and deep teaching We know that we have developed, and again, using our speech to um, benchmark our practice, if our speech to ourselves or to others is base or vulgar or unnecessary, if it's just idle chatter, use your concentration to recognize it and start to curtail it. You're likely not going to be able to abandon something that is that conditioned, but you don't have to. You can let and you could abandon whatever little bits of it that you can as you go along. And as you continue to develop your Dharma practice and prioritize Dharma practice, it will become um, ever more obvious and ever more effortless to just say, wait a minute, this is a distraction. I don't want to live my life in distraction. I don't want to live my life confused anymore. I don't want to live my life constantly grasping after the next little bit of knowledge. We have all the knowledge right here in, in this room and what the Buddha taught and what we teach. We teach liberation from ignorance. And we don't teach how to distract yourself. In fact, we're very careful to frame and structure our Sangha and how we practice to uh, afford all of us the opportunity to know how to not get distracted. But again, we have to do that ourselves. The Buddha's been saying it for 2,600 years. We've been saying it for 13 or 14 years. But we still need to say it, don't we? Because our minds as human beings are so conditioned to group think and tribal think. And creating our cues about how to think, even about the Dhamma, to what we are associated with. Even if those associations are not very wise. Doesn't make them bad, wrong, or anything. It just means as Dhamma practitioners, we should be mindful of it. The Buddha continues. They maintain the right intention to think th thoughts that are noble and develop renunciation, harmlessness, and liberation. They are well concentrated and empty of disturbing thoughts. Ananda, develop refined mindfulness of the sixth sense base. The six, our five physical senses and the sixth sense of our consciousness, the sixth sense base to understand how contact with the senses creates disturbance and inflames passion. If we're not well concentrated and haven't integrated the Eightfold Path, ask yourself if there is any disturbance formed by engagement and self-identification with regard to contact at the sixth sense base. Whatever we're becoming, whatever we become con in contact with in our moment-by-moment moment life. If upon mindful reflection, the Buddha says, you find that disturbance has arisen from contact, then you will know that you are not empty of craving and clinging. Excuse me. 
But if, but if you find that there is no disturbance that arises in your mind from contact at the sixth, the sixth sense base, then you will know the craving for sensory sat that that craving for sensory satisfaction has been abandoned. When we can walk freely throughout the, through the world, moment by moment, liberated, but we don't feel that disturbance. We don't feel like we need to be any different than what the moment calls for, or that anything or anyone in our surrounding needs to be any different. Why? Because we now we know the profound understanding that nothing can be different than the way it is. What is to be is what is here. Out there and in here, especially in here. What is to be is what is here. The qualities of your mind will be well concentrated and empty of disturbing thoughts. Now the Buddha says the five clinging aggregates should be seen as a rising and passing away. That's a primary teaching. That even though we have been subjected to the five clinging aggregates for all of our lives, we now know what the five clinging aggregates are and how to abandon the clinging aspects of the five clinging aggregates. The five clinging aggregate, aggregates should be seen as arising and passing away. Form arises and passes away. Feelings arise and pass away. Perceptions arise and pass away. Fabrications arise and pass away. And deluded thinking arises and passes away. If it didn't, if the five clinging aggregates weren't part of the um, the natural setting of a human being's life, our life arises and passes away, doesn't it? And the five clinging aggregates arise and pass away until we stop clinging them together. And now we've liberated ourselves. And we are the only ones that can do that. But Dhamma practice will give you that. Maintaining refined mindfulness, any conflict that supports the five clinging aggregates is abandoned. And this one is mindful that they have emptied themselves of any disturbance formed by ignorance. The quality of mind is well concentrated and empty of disturbing thoughts. Ananda, the qualities that are, de are developed through the Dhamma are singularly useful, singularly. No, this, this, is, this is skillful practice. Singularly useful in developing understanding of reality. They are noble, transcendent, and cannot be affected by ignorance. Now, when, Ananda, what do you think? What, what do you think is a proper goal for a disciple, even after a rebuke from their teacher? Run and hide, go find another group, give up. Ananda said, you are our teacher and your Dhamma is our guidance. Please explain this statement for our long-term benefit. Ananda, it is not skillful to follow a teacher simply to hear discourses or dogma. I did that for many years. And I heard many really great teachings. And I learned from many great teachers. They just wouldn't teach anything to me that I could find useful. It was, it was a very pleasant distraction. Ananda is not skillful to follow a teacher simply to hear their discourses or dogma. You have done it. Now, remember, the Buddha is talking to his cousin now. He knows him. You have done this for a long time and have understood them in according to your, to your views. But talk on modesty, contentment, seclusion, 
non-entanglement, persistence, wisdom, virtue, and concentration. Talk that is always scrupulous, conducive to refined mindfulness. That de- that develops directly dispassion, disenchant, disenchantment, cessation, calm, unbinding, and the direct knowledge and vision of release is skillful to attend and hold in mind, which is what my refined mindfulness means. The Buddha continues, this being the case, failure to empty oneself of clinging to ignorant views will lead to long-term to the long-term suffering for a teacher or a student or anyone engaged with the Dhamma. So as a teacher, if I decide that today I want to teach a poem from uh, that I just came across from pick up a modern person and decide to substitute that for a Dhamma class, I'm misleading you, but I'm also deepening my own ignorance by presenting it in such a way as a teacher. But also these same things apply to all of you as Dhamma practitioners. Will lead to the long-term suffering for a teacher, a student, or anyone engaged with the Dhamma. How does this occur? For a teacher, even dwelling in seclusion, becomes enamored by offerings of trinkets or praise and falls into the three defilements, greed and aversion and ongoing deluded thinking. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking and suffering. There is also the case of a student lacking understanding, imitates the teacher and has failed to empty themselves of clinging to ignorant views and becomes enamored with trinkets and praise and falls into the three defilements. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. Then there is a case where one engaged with the Dhamma fails to empty themselves from views. A Tathagata has arisen in the world, a worthy and rightly self-awakened one. Dwelling in seclusion, he avoids becoming enamored by the offerings of trinket or praise and does not fall into the three defilements. His mind is calm and empty of disturb, excuse me, of disturbance. A student of the Tathagata, the Buddha, dwelling in seclusion, becomes enamored by offerings of trinkets and praise and falls into the three defilements and lives in luxury. This can only develop further confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. And again, it's just another admonition on keeping your practice pure. Don't just practice because you you found a teacher that you're enamored with if they're not teaching you something that is part of Dhamma practice. And we're all free to do whatever we want and practice whatever we want and follow whatever we want. But what we're talking about is practicing the Dhamma and keeping it pure. Because it doesn't work if we don't. In this regard, Ananda, a Dhamma practitioner who fails to empty themselves of the defilements can only continue confusion, deluded thinking, and disappointment. Do not engage with the teacher or the, or the Dhamma in opposition. Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking about, so I want to comment on that, and I don't. Wise restraint. Engage with the teacher and the Dhamma with friendliness. Right? And I think that's how we all are here. We're friendly with each other. And our teachers are friendly to you, our students. Engage with the teacher and the Dhamma with friendliness. 
That alone will be for your long-term well-being and happiness. And how do students engage in opposing, in opposition to the teacher? When the teacher teaches the Dhamma with understanding and concern for the student's well-being, but the students do not listen or apply themselves to understanding, they stray from the Dhamma. And that's the, that, that's the takeaway, isn't it? It's up to you. This is how students oppose the teacher. And how the students engage with the teacher and the Dhamma in friendliness. When the teacher teaches the Dhamma with understanding and concern for the student's well-being and students listen and apply themselves to understanding, they do not stray from the teacher or the Dhamma. This is how students engage with the teacher in friendliness and not in opposition. Again, well, I think all of you know this and that everything we do as a, as a Sangha and everything we teach as teachers and the entire structure of what we do here, the website, the books, etc., is all done with friendliness. We want to provide the best opportunity for all of you, including us, to continue to develop the Dhamma free of distraction and with the opportunity to keep it pure. Ananda, engage with the Dhamma in friendliness. This will be for your long-term well-being and happiness. Then the Buddha says some words that I just love. He says, I will not hover over you, but I will remind you again and again of the Dhamma. Do I do that for all of you? Do all of our teachers do that for all of you? Yes. <laughs> we will remind you again and again of the Dhamma. That's our job. What is not essential will be gone, and what is essential will remain. That's what goes on here in this room and on the website. This is what was said, and Ananda was delighted in the Buddha's words. That's tonight short sutta. Um, I'd like to hear from every one of you, but again, let's uh, try to keep our comments to a few, two, three, four minutes. Um, I'm going to go to Jane. Hello, Jane. I know you love talking first. Hi, John. Thank you for the teaching. Um, I just want to say that my practice has brought me peace, and I'm grateful to the teachers and and everybody who helps me along the way. So thank you. Thank you, Jane. Rebecca, uh, Rebecca, Raquel? Is that you there? Yeah, that's you. Hi, John. Good evening. Hi, everyone. Thank you for the wonderful teaching. And uh, I, I echo what uh, Jane was saying, that I'm so grateful uh, for you always and all, all the teachers. I'm also a lot more peaceful today than I was before I joined uh, the Sangha not too long ago. And the one thing that today I resonate to me was that what you said, when you know that nothing that you encounter or will encounter will disturb your mind, I think that's when you are 
encounter or achieve um, your goal, your best, I, I think. And yes, uh, yes. knowing that, uh, uh, be gentle to yourself that you keep emphasizing is knowing that uh, the peace that I have now, understanding that every minute uh, of your life is an opportunity for you to restart over. Because before I would always say, I mean, being like reprehending uh, myself to have done this or that in the wrong way, but now, nowadays, I do a, a lot less uh, uh, blaming myself other than thinking that, okay, I can restart all over and uh, do better next time. So thank you. And thank isn't you. that wonderful to finally have the opportunity to do, to do that? Yes. Instead of just yes. continuing down, what, to continue the path that is only creating stress and suffering for ourselves. Yes. Thank, you. Thank is, you. Is Mark there with you? Yeah, he is. Here I am. Hello. Hello, Mark. How are you tonight? Good. Thank you for the teaching. I will uh, hold silence today. Thank you again. I'm glad you joined us. Anybody mind being on camera? Hey, Zach. Let me get you. Teaching Brilliantly radiant. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, no, no. Um, uh, yeah, I think this this one requires quite a bit of study because there's just there's just a lot here. Yeah. So, um, but I appreciate it. appreciate the teacher. Yeah. You. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, there is a lot here, and there's there's more here than I think most anyone could completely comprehend. But as you see, we don't have to. We take out of this what we can. You know, we had a little, we've talked a little bit about how, and I say it here often, that the Dhamma meets you where you are, but it won't chase you down. You know, you got to present yourself to the Dhamma too. And then the Dhamma will work for you in just that way. So thank you, Brilliant Zach. Brilliant and Radiant Julia. Thank you for the teaching. Um, 
that in the last series because it really reminded me of a, of a teaching around group or community. I don't think it was part of the China study, but it might have been. Conversation may have taken place at retreat. Maybe. No, there was, a, there was a group. There was so, one of A different suit of yeah. groups. Because yeah, there's a few suttas that where the Buddha talks about wise associations is another way of putting it. Got it. Yeah, because it, it, what was coming up for me in, in the part of the teaching that was really about group participation was how much we're socialized around like developing our own identities and how you get identity I'm making because of who you affiliate with associationalism. Yeah. I think one of the cool things about this teaching about groups was that Studying the Dhamma doesn't like absolve you of responsibility for like associating with a group. It, it teaches you how to exist in a group with a state of calm, right? Like, yeah, well secluded. And be calm and peaceful and associate with the group in a way where you get to practice the Dhamma. The Dhamma doesn't tell you you can't be a young Democrat. I'm just using that as an Yeah, term. no, that's right. But at the same time, I think the other factors of the Eightfold Path do give you guidance about who and what you want to associate with. Because Absolutely. there are those factors tell you about intention and action and livelihood. So I think I was just chewing on that because it's not like a free pass that like you can do whatever you want as long as you do it right you. The other factors yeah. tell you that, oh, we actually do have more guardrails and you do have to be mindful of who, what, where, and how you affiliate. Yes. It, yeah, anyway, that was my sort of, it's both, but it's neither. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Yeah, no, you're right in seeing that. It, it's a, well, it's not a, it, I was going to say it's a subtle and nuance. It, it is that, but then again, it's not. Mm -hmm. Again, it, you're, you're um, we learn as Dhamma practitioners the significant difference between acceptance and approval. Right. So I can be part of the Young Democrats, even though I might not approve of everything they do, but I don't associate with that either. I don't wear a placard around my neck. By and again, it could be anything. It could be the local bowling league. It doesn't really matter. But and that and that we would then take our cues by what the group is thinking rather than what the Buddha teaches is we become independent thinking, not clinging to anything in the world. Right. So again, it doesn't mean that we we never are with groups. We're not. We you know we 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 just live alone. You know that's not that's not it. But it's maintaining that seclusion that we establish on our cushion. And then within the framework of the Eightfold Path, for, as the guidance for our moment-by-moment -moment life, staying disentangled from the world. But the inverse is also true, which is that I do think, I sense, and correct me if I'm not getting this right, but by practicing the Dhamma, there is a little bit of per, triggering words, personal responsibility to not cause harm. And I think that you have to be mindful of community that you are part of because 
the arrest of the Eightfold Path matters to your practice. Oh yeah, you're 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 so right about that. And there's there's such a thing as being part of a group that engages in hurtful and harmful rhetoric towards people and just being by again by me being part of a group like that is giving tacit approval of what they're doing and so i'm very careful about anything that i associate with just on a personal not you know not because i'm you know i'm i'm the most disengaged person in the world doesn't matter Mm -hmm. but there are groups that i won't associate with or support financially or just by my presence simply because i find in general, what they're doing is uh, creating conflict in the world. And that changed a lot. As, as the conflict in my mind started to subside somewhat, I started noticing associations that didn't fit with that anymore. So, associations that I thought were wholesome. But it, when I started gaining a little bit better perspective and starting to have my thoughts framed by the Eightfold Path, I realized that certain groups that seem beneficial, especially by the way they present themselves, were actually creating a lot of conflict in the world. And so I gradually dissociated myself from a lot of those things that were really cause-taking on my part. I mean, I've been a part of those kind of things in, you know, decades, I guess, but it used to be a big part of my life. You know, I'm this and I'm that, and I support this and I hate that. And there's none of that, you know. I, I, you're gonna, you're coming up next, but I want to make sure that mm-hmm. we cover Julia. No, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the students. I think as a trigger this thinking. It's yeah, fun. it's good thinking. Thanks, Julia. Here's Ron. Good evening, Ron. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I was, I was thinking about. But it's the scene, the setting of, of this sutta where uh, Anand is all is all happy to be, you know, doing these things for his for his teacher and for his sangha, and and uh, and his cousin rebukes him and says, "You you've lost your way here." Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it's not just that. I see the Buddha also telling him that he's not a good example here. He is, yeah. Yeah. To 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 his students, yeah. Because you know he, he was one of the teachers, and he was he was just presenting a, a bad example. As as much as he was thinking he was doing the right thing. This is what we do. All these monks come and we take care of them, and, and, and we're actually enjoying ourselves, making these robes and, and preparing the, the dwellings for for uh, what sounds to me like the the rains retreat. Uh, yeah, and he was creating. Siddhartha saw that Ananda was creating an identity over what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was that, and he, and that was what was the Buddha Siddhartha knew would be for his long-term detriment if he didn't recognize that. It it didn't mean that Ananda immediately stopped making robes for people. He likely continued, but he no longer. His attitude changed completely. Yeah, 
and he was doing it because that's that's what he was doing, rather than being, you know, some mm -hmm. and and gaining trinkets or praise from the people for all his good work. We don't do that here, you know. Yeah, or even the the uh, and, and there may not have been praise from his students, but there was this. Um, I'm sure the Buddha saw a certain amount of admiration in in on the students. Um, well, they knew how to how to show respect, and, mm -hmm. and and I mean that's important. We we're all here very respectful of each other most of the time. Every now and then, I mm -hmm. I notice something that is disrespectful. But like Matt said earlier, you know, 98, 99 percent of our behavior here within the sangha is very respectful to the to all of us teachers and to the Dhamma itself and to the Sangha. Yeah, because we all know that we have found something that needs to be nourished. Yeah. yeah. At least I, I thoroughly uh, appreciate everyone's effort in that direction because it's, it is for my benefit. Yeah. That yeah. Thank you, Ram. I used to say when I would I was given to even more flowerful uh, conclusions than I am now, but that the four noble truths are like this. You, you, this there's this beautiful jewel box, and you open it up, and inside are these four noble truths. They're pure jewels, but we need to treat them with respect, don't we? Once we understand what they are, and that means conducting ourselves in a certain way that represents the Dhamma to ourselves and to others in a skillful way. Thank you, Ron. Here's David. Good evening, David. I find it interesting. Julia, over a month ago, question about you know, friends that she was questioning as far as can she maintain these relationships? That was a while ago, wasn't it? And uh, you could just see the progression of understanding and how it changes. And you go into a relationship or a group with a more refined approach because of your concentration yep. increasing and the ability to be mindful in that group or in the relationship. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you have to reject someone, but there's some natural falling away that will occur yep. or strengthening or changing. And that's just part of that, that process. So yeah. Yeah. For most for, you know, see things change. Yeah. And, and, and we have the concentration and the, the framework and guidance of the eightfold path so that we recognize these changes and know which changes are to our benefit or maybe not simply because, we're practicing the Dhamma and we're continually learning. You know, I've, I've taught, I should probably figure it out one day, but I probably taught like 1400 classes. And I, I've, every class has deepened my under, I mean, I had a pretty good understanding of the Dhamma before I started teaching, but it's, it's simple. It's easy to practice. But it is so profound. There's never a moment in, in my life that isn't enhanced by my Dhamma practice. 
And most of that is because all of it is because I'm able to be present for it. And most of the time I'm able to discriminate and not say, I want this or I don't want that. It's just what's occurring. And it's just wonderful. It's just a, a complete liberation, isn't it? So, thank you, David. Here's Maddie. There are a couple things. I love when there are suttas that kind of shed more light on the Buddha's character and countenance yeah. and and his way. And I think this one, this sutta, is is one of those. And hopefully, by now. We can all understand that the Buddha was kind of different, <laughs> different than most. And because of the way that he practiced and his experience. And I like how, how he he kind of he just clues right into a very common thing with people is to, when they're around other people is to kind of come to the marketplace of ideas and 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 sell and buy and trade and 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 kind of you know play the game, the acquisition game, the, the, um, the, the delight that, that they talk about. And, and Ram, you, you, you brought that out really well. Uh, but I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is, is that the Buddha was so different in the way that I mentioned that he he was totally bringing it back to your own personal responsibility yeah. for yourself all the time every second every moment every step every lying down walking seated standing you know carrying the robe, carrying your bowl, doing the thing, going to the bathroom, everything all the time, which is different. Most people don't have that. Rooted, grounded <coughs> attention. And because he could, he could direct Ananda back to, to just absolute personal responsibility not not about his students not about other people you know how are you now don't lose your concentration don't lose your mind in a group in a room full of other people because do you see that you did 
could you see that you could? You know, so I just enjoy that that those, that kind of look at at the Buddha and, and how he teaches and how he taught and 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 that it that it comes back. What is a group? A group is a bunch of individual people with direct responsibility for themselves together. So it's like every one of those people, if if they just delight in being in a group, they'll never get. They're 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 never gonna develop the release, because. They already gave it all away. They don't. It, it's, they've they've dissolved into the group. Mind. There's even a phrase for that. I've given everything to this. To right. That. Yeah. Giving away the responsibility. Yeah. 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 And you're yeah, and you then if you've done that, now you're not really responsible for anything, are you? Yeah. It's all it's all up to the group, and of course this practice is all about what you just said. Take complete responsibility for yourself and the way you think and the way you feel and how your life is going. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> yeah, you brought out the Buddha almost is, seems a little bit stern with Ananda, where a few weeks ago we had the the uh, Datu Vibhanga Sutta, where he's, he's very playful with Pukasati, teaching him really essentially the same thing, but what every human being is is a six-property person. But he played around with him. Excuse me. But still, he says, I will not hover over. Yeah. Yeah. I give, just... you, I give you the freedom to, to make these mistakes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's up to you to become rightly self-awakened. Yeah. It, when, when, he's, when he's done with that teaching, he goes back into his own seclusion. I mean, I, I got a feeling that the Buddha wasn't left alone all that much, but you know, but mm-hmm. again, that and that's <coughs> he's exampling to his sangha and to the larger community, and still to us, twenty six hundred years later, on how to actually practice his dhamma. And this is a key point of his dhamma. He talks about wise associations in many different ways, including here. So, thank you. Uh, any other questions or comments before we finish with meta? Okay. Uh, yeah. This. I'll have a, the other five suttas posted, and I'm actually going to change the the sequencing of the rest of this. Um, but we'll we're there's five more suttas which will take us. I think the last class in this series will be December 30th, and then beginning on I think January 2nd is the next Tuesday. Uh, I'm going to give a talk, um, which is more commentary than a, on a sutta, but it's kind of in the spirit of beginning the new year and how to focus our dharma practice. And then that Friday, whatever that would be, I think January 5th or 6th, we'll start the Vipassana. Okay, no questions, no comments. Finish with Metta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, describing the qualities of an awakened human being. 
This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, and having completed the path, does not give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace, everyone. Thank you, John. Thank you, James. Good night. Good night. See you, Raquel. See you, Mark. Thank you, John. Thank you. Good night. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. If you find benefit here and to learn more about the Buddhist Dhamma, please support the continuing restoration and presentation of the Buddhist Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com.